This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. My pleasure. It's a it's a it's a, a retreat to my youth. <laughs> so tell us tell us exactly where you are and what time it is. I'm in Nemea, Greece, uh, which is uh, an ancient Panhellenic game site. It is now eight nineteen in the evening. The sun is long down. Uh, the lights in the village are up. The town of ancient Nemea has about two hundred and fifty inhabitants. But it has a temple with now nine columns. When John was with me, I think there were only three or four. And no, there were only three. Uh, we, we put uh, those up. It has an ancient stadium uh, where athletes ran and competed uh, for the in the games, uh, and a museum. Uh, and uh, it's my home now. Fantastic. I'm, I'm going to let John give a little introduction as to um, how he got you on the podcast and. You guys' history together, and uh, and why he was so um, compelled to get you on this podcast. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Well, so, for those of you guys listening, um, this is Professor uh, Stephen Miller. Um, he was one of my college professors at UC Berkeley. Um, I took his introduction. It was kind of a introduction to ancient athletics class, which was recommended to me. Uh, by our academic advisors as not only, uh, you know, an excellent class to take, but also something that, you know, fulfilled kind of different, you know, avenues. As a young student athlete, they try to give you a nice, diverse offering of classes, and his uh, class was, you know, one of the main ones in there. So I end, uh, ended up taking his ancient athletics class and realized that, you know, typical of Berkeley, you're sitting there listening to not only knowledgeable people, but actually the people who did the research, and that was the one thing that really struck me about going to Berkeley, is I could go to a class and not just hear information about somebody else, but actually hear it from the people that not only did the research, came up with the information, created the uh, the entire you know course. So uh, in terms of ancient athletics, uh, Professor Miller is probably the, I would say, the foremost expert in the world uh, in not only, uh, you know, uh, the Olympics in terms of antiquity and what's going on. So it was a really fascinating class. Uh, Professor Miller and I became friends as a young young football player and obviously a, you know, soon-to-be professional athlete. And he ended up recommending that I take his history of Roman monuments class, which was another upper – which was an upper division class, which I took. And we were joking earlier about um, how it was – I would rank it up there as one of the most difficult classes I took because it was purely based on retention. It was it was looking at slides, being able to understand the slides, and you know go back and give a history of it. So uh, we'll po we'll post up some information. But if you guys go back and do some research on Professor Miller, you'll see that uh, what was it? I think in the 70s you actually went to Greece and, and excavated the original site at Nemea. But since since 73, I've been here at, at Nemea working on the site and digging the, the, the stadium and other buildings and, and monuments that have to do with ancient games. If we can 
go back just a little bit, I'm curious as to how you first became interested in that field. In archaeology? Yeah, in archaeology and then the, the research that you um, found yourself in with Nemea. Dumb luck. <laughs> uh, I, 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 it was not something I had planned. I, when I was 18 years old, I didn't know how to spell archaeology. And there came to the college where I was a student, a, 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 a Greek archaeologist who was digging in Greece, and he spent two days there and lectured to us and told us what he was doing and how he was doing it. And by chance, I was studying ancient Greek at the time, which was the foundation, which is a very important foundation for classical archaeology. And so I was ready to, to move on into that, but it was several years before I got to Greece, several years before I realized that this was really what I wanted to do. But it was right, and I was very lucky to find what I wanted to do early enough so that it worked out. And then I was also lucky because Berkeley came to me uh, in 1971 and said that it wanted to dig at Nemea, and would I be willing and interested in going to Berkeley uh, as a faculty member to teach half of the year and to take students to Nemea the other half of the year to excavate? I had wanted to dig the Palace of Odysseus on Ithaca. That was my long-term dream. But when you're 29 years old and you've never had an academic job and you get an offer at a place like Berkeley, uh, and you get a chance to excavate at a site that has three ancient columns standing up, uh, it's hard to say no. In fact, I couldn't say no. And here I am still 40, what, three years later, 42 years later, uh, at the same site still working. So when I was, uh, when you originally took us through uh, the original, you know, kind of deals at Nemea or at Nemea, uh, you know, right, and this would have been in like 1996. I remember you said there were three columns, and you had, I think, just discovered that there had been like a hippodrome, if I remember. And you were really well. There had to be, yeah, yeah. There, there had to be a hippodrome here because equestrian events were. Hello. Yeah, we're here. Wait a second, my phone is acting up. Okay, equestrian events were part of the, the Nemean Games, as I'm sure you remember, John. Yes. Uh, and, uh, there, so there had to be a hippodrome, and it was a question of figuring out where the possibilities were. And we began to find, yes, you're right, it was 96, 97, we began to find traces of it. It never has been fully uncovered, uh, but the general location is, is, is clear. And, and the importance of it is that there's never been an ancient Greek race track, horse race track, uh, that, that, that has been fully uncovered. And unfortunately, I've retired, and, and I won't probably see the Hippodrome here fully excavated, but I, I think I've been able to establish where it is, and the next generation knows where to, to start. At least I, I think they know where to start. Well, for those of you guys listening at home, a Hippodrome is actually a racetrack. And, uh, horse race. Uh, horse race, yeah. So, so that's the horse race, and they actually had a massive track for that. So... There was, uh, I remember that was a huge, huge discovery and uh, something that stuck with me. I remember it was one of the first questions I asked you when I emailed you. I'm like, did you find any more of that? And you're like, ah, unfortunately, no, we're not going down that direction. But, I mean, for me as a rhetoric major, uh, you know, which was, you know, uh, really steeped in the classics, it was extremely uh, exciting to not only see this other aspect because there was such a huge um, 
you know, amount of emphasis put on not, not only turning the the physical aspect, especially of the Greeks, but also, you know, the philosophy and the education. So, I mean, it's uh, it was pretty cool to kind of not only go in and study all these, uh, you know, Greek philosophers and the rhetoricians, but also to see that not only that, but they were all great athletes and they put a ton of uh, emphasis on athletic prowess. So definitely a very exciting deal. So from from 96... John, I don't mean to stroke your ego, but it seems to me that the most important aspect of ancient Greek athletics was that it was only one half of what a, an ancient Greek was about. The other half was in the mind. And you came very close to, ampli- uh, to, to exemplifying that. Thank you, Professor. Oh yes, God. finally, here we are talking to somebody that knows me. See, these guys, these, these guys. Maybe at 19. <laughs> yeah, at 19. <laughs> well, you know, excuse me, but I, I over about what, 20, oh, almost 30 years of teaching ancient Greek athletics at Berkeley, I had a lot of student athletes and many different uh, 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 athletic, many different uh, competitions, many different uh, teams and what have you. And uh, I was a great fan of football, and I was always very partial to the football players that came in. And some of them were really outstanding students, and they, they exemplified that Greek ideal of the mind and the body. Uh, there were some who weren't. <laughs> Very good in the mind, but John fit into the first category. Would you uh, would you elaborate on that a little bit when you talk about exemplifying the mind and the body? In terms of the mind, do you just mean interest in arts and things outside of the like an athlete? No, 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 no. I mean, I mean knowledge. I mean uh, an ability to think out problems. I mean uh, an ability to absorb facts, which is what I asked John to do. In, in the history of Rome, the, the Roman topography class, uh, but then to use them uh, and, and to take those facts and put them together and to draw conclusions from them. Uh, and, I mean, the, the ancient Greek schoolroom was a part of the time, a place where people sat and talked and, and discussed uh, of, uh, what they should do with their lives and how they should live their lives. And part of the time was where they went out and wrestled and boxed and ran and, and, and engage in, in physical exercise. And that's that's what I'm uh, what I'm after. I don't think that in America today we think in those terms so much that we should be trying to to develop mind and body together. But sometimes, by accident or by whatever good luck, it happens. And 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 that, when that happens, that's that's wonderful. Do you think that the that intellect side is something that can make an athlete better? Yes. If it's developed, I used to I used to have great I used to have great fun uh, on on Monday mornings when I would go into class and I would I'd been at the football game and I had watched one of some of my students playing and I said you know in the third quarter you held that guy and you didn't get called for it and to watch the blush come over the face of that of that tackle or that guard who. <laughs> didn't know that I was watching that closely. Uh, but it turned them on. It got them excited. It got them interested. And I'm convinced that the best football players, and, and I think in other sports as well, uh, are those who have physical skills and have practices, but also think it out and think through things and understand whether intuitively or because of 
uh, their, their experience, that there is a certain way that you are going to leverage your opponent. I mean, I shouldn't be talking about this. I'm not a specialist. John can talk about this better than I. But I think there's an intellectual aspect to it. And when you are standing in a huddle and the quarterback throws 25 numbers at you and you have to pick out what number is the right number and which that, what that means, and you have to memorize a playbook that has, God, I don't know, John, how many playbooks, how many plays were in the playbook at Cal? There's hundreds 50, 100? Yeah, there's hundreds of plays and hundreds of variations. Yeah, exactly. And But you have to be able to respond in a, in a couple of seconds to that and know what your re- assignment is to do. That, that's, that's physical implementation of a mental process. Dr. Miller, uh, why do you think that athletes have come so far away from that, um, especially with your understanding of uh, ancient athletics? Do you think that there was almost a necessity for it? I, at the I time? can't. I, you know, uh, uh, every, any answer I give you is going to be prejudicial. Sure. But it seems seems to me that there are. I mean, an athlete out on the field has a coaching staff, has a coach and a coaching staff, and I think that plays a huge role. Those people are teachers, and they they need to take into account all of the aspects of the athlete, and they need to utilize them and actually to exploit them. And I think that there are times when coaches, frankly, are not smart enough to understand what they need to do with the students, the student athlete, to get the best out of them. Excuse me, you're you're talking to a professor now, not to a coach. Well, I mean, no, I... I, uh... You know, some of the most insightful things that we've heard on this podcast in life is actually coming from people that are not necessarily in the field that are observing things from the outside. And the reason I was so excited to get you on is that you have such a great understanding of uh, competition athletics and really like the idea of competition from, you know, thousands of years ago. And what's amazing is, and I remember sitting in your class drawing parallels between like today and realizing how much things have not changed, and always the one I think about is you had a whole exactly. deal on supplements. Exactly. On supplements. Okay, yeah. okay, okay Wellborn, you get an A. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I, I like, like as I was telling uh, Luke and Callie when you know uh, about bringing you on, I'm like, you know, we gotta not only ask him um, about uh, you know the training in antiquity, what they did to get ready, but the supplements, the diet, and mm, really things mm, that. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah. I think would be amazing for people to hear because it wasn't that different. Um, I, I think like one guy consumed like massive amounts of like uh, I think it was like bee pollen, and I just I'm, I'm, I'll, yes. I'll let you yeah. talk about it because you you you, you obviously know well no the, 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 the ancient Greek athletics and this is the joy that I have of studying ancient Greek athletics because it, it evolved and I can see over hundreds of years the evolution of what was going on with the competitions themselves and with the training for them. Whereas in the early days, it was just Joe Blow who was strong going out and beating up on the other guy. Then it became a question of being trained, of how to beat up on the other guy. And then it became a question of how to get your body into shape to beat up on the other guy. And this, over the over the centuries, and we're talking about maybe 500 years of, of development, you suddenly have the diets uh, that are uh, uh, expressly used for athletes. For example, in Greece, 600 years before Christ, nobody ate meat, or at least 
not regularly. They eat it on holidays. It was a rarity to have meat in your diet. But gradually it was understood that the protein that came out of meat is going to help your body strength. And so you suddenly have athletes, to the exclusion of the rest of society, getting a heavy protein meat diet. And this sets the athlete apart from the rest of society. You can draw your own modern conclusions from this. But what I'm saying, trying to say is that the athlete who had originally just been Joe Blow, who went out and ran or wrestled, suddenly becomes a specialist. And with that specialty, he has to have his diet because his competitors have this, this sort of diet. The, the, at the Olympic Games, we know that they got into such training that there was what was called the four-day cycle. And the theory was that if you trained slightly on day one and then more intensely on day two and more intensely on day three and then on day four you went to compete, you would be ready for competition. And if you were going through this over a period of weeks and months, you would have this four-day cycle over and repeating itself. So you would be... I, I think, frankly, it was more psychological than physical, but it could have been physical, I can't say. Uh, but th- th- they were building up. So the officials at the Olympic Games banned it. They made the athletes come to Olympia a month before the game, time of the Games so they could check to make sure they were not doing the four-day cycle. I mean, th- 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 these, I mean there was a lot of, of, of this sort of technique that was going on to try to win. What were some of the uh, the supplements? And I remember there was a whole section in the class uh, talking about, like, not only, like, uh, supplements, and then didn't they ban certain supplements that, like, uh, super, uh, certain people couldn't take certain things because it gave a competitive advantage? That was, that was again, like the four-day cycle, it was also an issue of not allowing you to overeat meat, particularly meat. Meat was the, the big issue. Uh, and... Uh, there, there, so far as we know, as far as I know at any rate, there weren't drugs in the sense that we have them today, that you go into the pharmacy and, and, and buy things all, uh, that, that can enhance your performance. But it was understood that there were certain foods that could enhance your performance. And there was, a, there was always an attempt to stay ahead of the athlete uh, <laughs> so that he couldn't get an, an advantage out of, of what he was ingesting. Um. What, I have a question. What purpose was competition serving at the time? Was it entertainment-based? Was it... Um... Mm, mm, mm. Initially, initially, it was competition for its own sake. You, you ran and wrestled and, and boxed so that you could prove that you were better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And in our revival of the demand games that we have here in the ancient stadium every four years, you can see that sort of attitude that's sort I'm going to, I mean, you, you get guys who are 80 years old, who are overweight, who go out and run because they think they can win. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole point. They don't win. Uh, there's only one winner, but these guys have competed, and they've gotten into that, 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 that competitive mode. But as time went by, and again, I, I stress the evolution of ancient Greek athletics, as time went by, and as athletes became more specialized and became uh, more attuned to diet, more attuned to training cycles, uh, more uh, frequently uh, an athlete would have his own personal trainer who would go with him all, all around the world. 
as, as this goes on, the athlete does become an entertainer. And that was the joy of athletics in antiquity, and I think the joy of athletics today for the spectator, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. I was just curious if they were ever compensated, and then if they were, did that... Oh, oh, yeah. Let me talk about the cycle of the four games, Olympia, Delphi, Isthmus, and here at, at Nemea. Those were the crown games, and in theory... What you got as a winner, and, and have in mind, please, that there were no second place or no third place. You were a winner or you were a loser, end of story. For the winners, what they got here at Nemea was a crown of wild celery. What they got at Olympia was a crown of olive. There are these crown games, and all you have are these, these vegetable crowns on your head that one ancient cynic said were worth more for goats than they were for men. But... When you went home, and when you went back to Athens, or, hello? Yes, yeah, When you went back to Athens, or to your hometown, whatever, Sparta, whatever it is, you would get a free meal at city expense, state expense, for the rest of your life, because you had won that crown. When you won a second crown, you would get a second free meal. And by the time you had won four of those crowns, which meant that you were a circuit winner, a, a, a grand slammer, you would have four free meals today. How many free meals can you eat in a day? <laughs> so the, the meals were translated into uh, funds and money. So that the notion that we have today of ancient Greek athletics as being amateur athletics, meaning no money was involved, is wrong. It's completely wrong. But what uh, there, there was a lot addition? of money involved. But what, I mean, uh, and I, I'm trying to pull from previous knowledge, but wasn't that the transition between, like, the, uh, and I forget what the Greek word is, it's like amateur or whatever it was, like the amateur, the non yes. and, yes. and then moving to the professional, uh, which was for the pay, and, like, what was the, was that just something that happened like, and evolved, or was that, like, a pretty distinct deal, or was it just happened through evolution? No, it, it evolved, and I think, the, 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 I don't think there's a point in time where you can say, that this is when it happened, but, um, it was evolving, and when the athlete is in a, con in a position where he can make a living from athletics, when it's possible for him to uh, set up, set himself up for life out of what he wins, his, his, his earnings, his, his money that, that come in from his victories, and he only gets paid if he wins. Uh, then you, you've got a situation where people are going to get involved. And this is going on already. We talk about the classical period of the 5th century B.C., but it was happening then already, and uh, there's plenty of evidence for it. Uh, and then by the time you get to the, 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 the period of Alexander the Great, you have stadia that is set up that no longer are simple grassy uh, depressions. You start to have seats, and big seats for the spectators. In other words, the the, uh, the arrangements for the athletes don't change that much, but they change for the spectators. Uh, you, you guys are probably not old enough, but I remember a team called the Oakland Raiders, which became the Los Angeles Raiders, which became the Oakland Raiders. And why did that change go on? Because of the spectator facilities, because of the box seats, because of the luxury uh, seats. I, so far as I know, the facilities for the athletes themselves didn't change that much. But this is what goes on in antiquity. You start out with no seats, a row of seats, a section of seats, the whole stadium filled with seats. Uh, and the athlete 
uh, at the same time uh, is is getting separated from the crowd. He has his own locker room, his own entrance tunnel, uh, and when he comes out on the track, it's a sense of, of theater. Uh, there's the appearance. Uh, I mean, John, you know, when you run out of the tunnel uh, and the crowd sees the team coming out, that's that's exciting. Yeah, and there's a theatrical aspect to that. Uh, with the, um, like, I, I think the, the other good parallel is, did the games or did the original competitions start as, like, a precursor for training for, like, the military and for war times? And oh, yeah, well, now you've opened, you've opened a big... A uh, big subject. This is often said that that athlete, athletics and antiquity were training for war, but I have I, I don't I don't agree with that I, because there are two kinds of athletics. There are the competitions that we have here at Namia where it's a one man event. You don't have team events, uh, and uh, the winner is the winner, and everyone else is a loser. And uh, I can't imagine why training how it's training for war. Uh, to uh, run a race in, with a helmet and a shield, but without an offensive weapon, not without a, sh- a spear or, or a sword. Whereas in the city-states, in Athens, in Sparta, in Corinth, you had team competitions. You had infantry drills. You had cavalry drills. You had uh, young men being trained for the military specifically. And there were competitions there, too, but there were intramural competitions. Uh, they were not international competitions. I think they're two very different things that are going on in antiquity. And you, you've hit one of my my hobby horses because I really don't think that international athletic competitions in antiquity had anything to do with war. I think they had to do with people going out and running and showing that they were the best of, of their kind. Was it, uh, and it was always related to free individuals, like like free citizens, like necessarily the slaves didn't compete, though. Yes, yes, you had to, you had to be a Greek person. You had to be Greek. You had to show your, that you were Greek. There, there were cases where uh, athletes presented themselves for competition, and their rivals would say, he's not a Greek, and he would have to prove that he was Greek in order to be this. So that these, what I call international competitions, are international in the sense that they're all of the Greek, Greek city-states, but they're not bringing in people from other parts of the world. They're just just the Greek world. But, but they are still the pre- predecessor of the Olympics today. But then we saw a huge transition. I remember you, you brushed on it briefly uh, when you got to Rome, for example, where all of a sudden, like the Gladiator Games and that stuff became a competition and more like a, uh, you know, a, you know, fighting. Yeah, that's, that's, that's purely that entertainment. But that was purely entertainment. entertainment. I, I don't know if it's entertainment for the Gladiators <laughs> or for the Christians or for the Lions. But it was entertainment for the spectators, really. Yeah, and I, yes. I remember you making the distinction between more like uh, the Greeks were doing this more for the pure competition, whereas the Romans were more about... Well, the originally, yes. I'm not sure they were later on, but but originally, yes. Yeah. So we're, uh, as you look back, what major parallels are you able to draw between, you know, those original what we see today, or are there no parallels? I mean, what, what our Olympics have necessarily evolved into is so well, far removed. there are parallels, but... But, but uh, you know, this one of the things that I've been doing in the last 20 years is the revival of the ancient games in the ancient stadium that I excavated. Anybody comes in, goes into the ancient locker room, takes off his or her clothes, puts on a, a white tunic, a chiton, and goes barefoot through the entrance tunnel out onto the track, puts 
toes into the same starting blocks that were there for the ancient Greeks, uses the same same starting mechanism and runs down the track. And these people are competing against one another and, to to a certain extent, against themselves. Because that's part of the spirit of Greek athletics is that you do your best against yourself. And, 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 you know, whatever happens after that is what happens. But you, you have to exert yourself. You have to promote yourself. You have to push yourself uh, to, to do your best. Um, and what I see in our little uh, games here is, is that sort of ideal. What I see, I'm sorry to say it, but I see increasingly in the Olympics which theoretically should be exactly that, should be what the ancient Greeks were. I see more and more corporate involvement. I see more and more uh, uh, money involved. And I, I see that only the very best athletes, and they are good athletes, can compete. Whereas I have no, I, I would never have a chance running down the track. Sure, I can, I can run down the track at Nemea, uh, and okay, I lose, but I still have competed. But I wouldn't even get to compete in the Olympic Games today. Um, I, I have a quick question. Um, so we, as a culture, have become it's, it's become a spectator sort of involvement. I mean, we rely heavily as a culture on watching sports every weekend. And I'm just curious as to when um, it became more of a spectator sport or the, the ancient athletics became more of a spectator-type um, experience, if other things were happening historically within that culture that drove people mm. to want to either distract mm. themselves with that or... Um, Why weren't you my student? <laughs> I don't know. Listen, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's right a question that's right on. In the 5th century B.C. and the 6th century B.C., when Greek athletics were evolving... And, and the, the, the spirit of competition and what have you was there. It was a competition between individual city-states. And you had the Athenians wanting to go out and beat the Spartans on the battlefield, but also at the Olympics, and also here at Nemea. Uh, and, and, you know, not it wasn't war, but there was a competitive spirit. Uh, at, at Berkeley, there's a place down the road called Stanford, and that's what you—that's the place you really want to be, and you do it on the field, uh, in competitions, and, and it's not just football; it's a lot of other uh, sports as well. And that rivalry between city-states was very high. By the time we get to the period of Alexander the Great, the individual, the power, the importance of the individual city-states has subsided, subsided tremendously, and there is a big ethnic nationalistic challenge for the Greeks against the Persians, against whatever it might be. And and, and the individual city-states diminish in their importance. And with that diminution comes the evolvement, I think, of Greek athletics as entertainment and where the athletes and the spectators are separate. But that doesn't, I mean, I, I hope I made myself clear, but there's a political aspect, a, a, a historical political aspect to the development of Greek athletics into an entertainment sport. What, uh, uh, the, so most of the research that you were able to do on a lot of this stuff and, and uh, like, like a lot of just the, the research on the athletes and the different events 
and whatnot. I remember you pulled from everything from like uh, I remember just seeing vast pictures of different vases and drawings and whatnot. Um, yes, yes. I, I yes. cannot remember for the life of me, but I always remembered that there was somebody who was like the almost uh, like the the greatest athlete at the time. And there was uh, was there one individual that went out and won just about everything and was like known as like the greatest athlete in uh, in antiquity. Well, there there are different different people at different times. Uh, one of the, the the most important was a fellow from the island of Thassos in northern Greece, just across the way from Amphipolis. If you've heard about what's been going on in Amphipolis lately, uh, this this guy Theogenes was his name. One, we're told in one source, he won fourteen hundred victories. And these were victories both at Olympia and Delphi and Isthmia and Nemea, but also at other local games, because there were local games that had uh, a money prize. And he, and this was 480 BC, at the, at the, just as the classical period is beginning, he's going out and beating every place, beating everybody every place. He, when he retires, uh, finally, uh, he has amassed, uh, I estimate, something like 25 to 30 million dollars. Uh, that's, you know, you, you can't always be sure about, uh, currency, uh, equivalents. But he, he's amassed a lot of money. He goes into politics. And after he dies, the people of Thassos have put up a statue of him in, in the, uh, marketplace, in the Agora. And he, his statue is there, and one of his political opponents, who was never successful against him, comes in and starts to pound on the statue. Uh, Theogenes himself is dead. But this opponent starts to pound on the statue, and the statue falls over and kills him. Victory. <laughs> and so the the people of Thassos say, oh my God, this is a bad thing. The statue is guilty of murder. We have to get rid of the statue. So they take the statue out and throw it into the sea. That's funny. Even in Two years, three years, four years go by, there's famine. There is a, a shortfall of food, and the, and the people of Thassos go to Delphi and say, what do we do about this? And they say, you have forgotten your great Theogenes, your great athletic hero. And they say, oh, my God, and they go back, and what do we do, what do they do? And fortunately, some fishermen out in the sea pulled up the statue, and they set the statue back up, but they created a hero shrine to this guy, this athletic hero, who ceases to be human, at least not, he's not entirely human, he's partly divine, because he, his statue, and through the statue, he has been able to inflict this, this wound, not only the guy who knocked the statue down, but on all of the, the people of Thassos. This story belongs in the 5th century B.C., 400 years before Christ and more. There is, at the island of Thassos, an altar, which is dedicated to Theogenes that dates to the first century after Christ, 500 years later. And it says that if you want to do proper things, you should put a drachma in the till. And there's a little slot that you can express your worship for the god, demigod, athlete, Theogenes. Was there a a baseball card equivalent to... Uh, like an homage to athletes, uh, pottery. There or? is. Didn't didn't they have uh, like coins, coins with their uh, with their images that like they traded? 
Yes, yes, yes. For some, for some, for special ones. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, it's so funny. I mean, like, a, all, all these things keep flooding back to me as she's asking these questions. I'm like, wait a minute, I've heard this before. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not very, I'm not very innovative, am I? <laughs> Dr. Miller, was it exclusively males who competed? Uh, theoretically, it was exclusively male, and we know that uh, at the games themselves, only males were allowed to be there, with the exception of a priestess here and there. However, there were games for women, uh, separate games for women at a different time of the year, at Olympia and elsewhere, and I suspect here at NEMI, although we don't have the evidence for it here, uh, but in different parts of Greece, we hear of women competing in athletic events. We don't hear very much about it. Uh, and uh, what I used to do, and John may remember this, what I used to do is on the day that I lectured about women's athletics in antiquity, I would take the San Francisco Chronicle and take the sports page and count up how many square inches there were devoted to men's athletics, how many to horse races, how many to advertisements, and how many to women's athletics. And women's athletics were never more than 2% of the whole of the San Francisco Chronicle sports page. And that doesn't mean that there weren't women's athletics. It doesn't mean that women were out were not out running and racing and what have you. It just meant that the, the, the press didn't cover them very well. And the same thing comes to us from antiquity. We don't have the press coverage. Don't, don't forget that all the people we have writing for us, with very few exceptions, are male. So they write about men's athletics. They don't write about women's athletics. Um, so it's a, it's a, there's, a, there's a social prejudice that's going on. Uh, Professor, tell Kelly what the typical dress was for the competition. For the for the male? Yes. Oil. <laughs> so so uh, offline, I was emailing Professor, and I asked him, I was like, Professor, are you still rolling around with your stalangi? Which uh, I totally butchered the spelling of it, but a stalangi was like a long stick that kind of had a curve to it. John, the image that may be the best... If you go to a fancy restaurant and the waiter comes around after you've eaten and spilled breadcrumbs all over the place, yeah, he has a scraper. Mm-hmm. Has a scraper that he scrapes off the breadcrumbs. It, it was something, a tool, something like that that John's talking about. So it scraped off the oil and the they the, would the, cover the, themselves the in olive oil, sweat, and, and the they would compete naked. And then when yeah. they were done, they would stalangi themselves, and then they would keep the remnants, like what they would stalangi off, and you know what they would use it for? Cooking. No, they would make it into uh, <laughs> colognes and potions and stuff, and women would buy it. At the yeah, yeah. Okay. It, was, it was a salve. Right, right, right. It was, wow. a, it was complete recycling. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Miller, did most were most of the athletes employed outside of just being athletes? I mean, did they were they tradesmen? Initially, in the early days, yes, they had their own. I mean, we hear about the the guy who was a farmer. We hear about the guy who. Uh, was a philosopher. We hear about this. But as time goes on, as they get into athletics, when around the time of Alexander the Great, around 330 years before Christ, by that time, athletes has become a profession. And it's a way you're going to make your living. Uh, and it, it becomes a, a very highly competitive but very limited sport. It's not for the whole society. It's not for any Tom, Dick, and Harry to run in. Uh, it's just for the guys who are really good at it. Doesn't it kind of go against what the original idea was, that this idea, and I, I always remember that. Well, that, you know, John, excuse me, uh, let me interrupt you for a second. I'm not sure the Greeks ever had an idea about it. I think they just, it was there, and they developed it, and they ran, 
Uh, they competed in the nude, as you uh, said, and I, and I think, frankly, uh, that that's where democracy comes from, is the idea of competitions in the nude, where everybody's all the same. I mean, you're not all the same, because some are tall and short, some are fast and slow, but uh, but the notion is that everybody is more or less equal. That The, the, the democratic idea, I don't think, was formulated beforehand. I think it evolved. I don't think that somebody came down and said, okay, we're going to have guys run the nude because it's good for blah, 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 blah. That's what it was. It just developed. And then it develops into what we would recognize today as professional athletics. I I always thought that there was this idea or or this notion or more importantly like this idea that you had to be kind of well-balanced, that you had to be a musician, a singer, a dancer. Yes, 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 you're right. You're right. But, but But the first time, the first time we hear that idea, is in the 4th century before Christ. It's not in the 6th or the 5th century. It's in the 4th century before Christ. When you get a Plato, who uh, was a wrestler, uh, and and probably, no, we're told that he won in games. Uh, Plato uh, was a, a, an Emian victor, and, and we're also told, although people don't believe it, that he was an Olympic victor. But it's Plato, more than any other person, says, you know, you need to develop your mind and your body together. And it was an idea. It was an ideal but it's an idea that evolves. It comes into being after the fact that you describe something that has already been there, not not a pre, not a predisposition. At least so far as we can tell from the from the ancient evidence we have. Yeah, I must have been getting that confused just because I remember actually it was Plato, and I do remember uh, reading about you know being balanced. And I you know for myself having uh, not only you know read that, but I always remember people always ask me. I was like, oh, you know. Uh, you know, you need to read that just being so one-sided and so focused on just one thing, you know, doesn't necessarily meet the demands no, and just no, only no. leads to being... Well, I mean, there's there's also the fact that if you're focused on just one thing, it gets boring. Yeah, that does happen. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. To kind of bring it full circle, I'm curious if you can touch on, I know we were talking about the athlete mind before, but are there any other character traits that you would say are relatively unique to ancient athletics that maybe aren't so much exhibited now, but would we would all benefit from? Well, obviously, uh, most modern athletes don't want to run, run around in the nude <laughs> uh, or put oil on their bodies. But, uh, but beyond that, uh, at least initially, athletics were important, but they were not important to the exclusion of all else. Whereas I think nowadays, and John is in a position to speak to this, uh, I, I have a notion that when a professional athlete is competing professionally, he is expected to pay attention only to to the to the competition, to the game, to the team, to the whatever he's up to, and forget reading Plato. Yeah, there's definitely a feeling that. We Am I wrong, John? Tell me. No, you're 100 percent right. I mean, there's you know, even though, <laughs> I mean. It's kind of a bullshit deal and just kind of lip service. I mean, you go to a place like Berkeley, which, uh, you know, I tell these guys every day is probably one of the finest academic institutions on the planet. And even at a place like like Berkeley, uh, you know, you're expected to not only uh, go out and go to class, get good grades, but really you're there to play football. And the goal of yeah, most yeah, of the yeah. uh, academic... I, I, used, I, used to have, I used to have real problems with uh, on occasion. I mean, the coaches... During the 30 years I was there, there were different coaches, and some of them were really clued in, and they would come to class and 
and really get involved and, and very supportive of what I was trying to do. But usually, they came and beat on my head and say, why didn't you pass this guy? I need him. Yeah. No, I, I do. Uh, well, you remember, I graduated in four years, and then my last year, I worked on my master's in education, and I was a... Yes, uh, right, I remember. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you wrote me, actually, a recommendation for that, and... Uh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, I, yeah, I, I do... Do you regret that? No, I, I, it was one of the most... Um, well, the only thing I regret was not finishing my thesis, and by the time I went back to go do it, they, uh, you know, um, the professor who was in charge of my program, and I cannot remember his name, uh, had passed yeah, away. Yeah, we Derek, all retired, don't we? Yeah, and then Derek Van Green took it over, and he wasn't as interested in letting me go back and do it. So at that yeah, point, I was kind of yeah, a little bummed. Yeah, but, I'm sorry for that. Uh, it, his name was Herb, uh, Herb, Herb Simons, I believe is what the professor's name was. But... Uh, you know, there was this attitude that, you know, the guys are there. And I remember even being a young graduate student and having young football players in my class. And I remember giving them an assignment on the Thursday, and it was a Tuesday-Thursday class. And I expected right. to have this assignment done on next Tuesday. And the young football players came in to me and told me that they couldn't get the assignment done because of the football game. And mind no, you, I'm no. in my last year. I'm a, you know, All-American, getting ready to go play in the NFL, started and played. These were all redshirt freshmen that did not play. And they came in and they tried no, to use no, the excuse of no, there was no. a football game. And I remember looking at yep, them and being like, right. you didn't play, I played. And they were like, well, yeah, <laughs> we, we had this football game, and how was I, how was I going to get this done? I remember and where, they, where did they get that? Did uh, they make it up themselves or were they encouraged? I think, uh, I think they're just young and lazy. And I remember giving them uh, Fs on the assignment and then getting a phone or and then seeing my yes. academic advisor and coach and being like, what the fuck? Why you know? Why are you giving these guys out? And I, I explained it to them. I'm like, dude, I'm not going to perpetuate this bullshit because when I came in here, I was thrown into a class of 800 people, and I was expected to go out and do my work. There was no none of this handholding, which is depressing because years later I learned that there were people at even at Berkeley that were committing academic fraud, getting their papers written, and I was like, where the hell? I know they were. Where, where, where the hell was that when I was there? I was like, I didn't get any of that stuff, so I was kind of a little pissed off. Well, it. it John had went from place to place and time to time and person to person. Let me tell you a story. There was a, a, a I, I gave a, a, an assignment for writing a paper, which is the same assignment that I've given in the past, to a class, and there were two basketball players in the class. And their names were next to each other in the, uh, in, in the, the list of suits. And the, the papers came in. And I read, down the read one after another after another, and I came to this one guy's, and there was this paper, and it sounded sort of familiar. And then I went to the next guy's, and it was not only the same paper, it was typed on the same printer, printed on the same printer, that had the same problems, the same, the missing letters here, and the missing, the, the skip spaces there. I mean, it was clearly, completely plagiarized. And boy, did I get into trouble with the, the coaching staff. Well, I, I think, but, um, and if memory serves... Let me, let, me, let, me, let me just finish the story, because one of the two guys uh, disappeared, uh, but the other guy came back and took more classes with me. He was never an A student, but he was a not a bad B student, <laughs> and I was very proud of him. Uh, he, you know, uh, he, he did something with himself in the end. 
Well, I, I, as I remember in our class, I remember there were a couple, I can't remember if they were football players or basketball players, that I think pulled some bullshit similar to that. And I remember uh, hearing about it, and I think instead of you, you know, going off the handle and, uh, you know, slapping with academic fraud and getting them burned at the stake, I remember you going in and uh, actually working with them and making them pay their debt, which I always respected, which I always thought was No, no, they had to come in, they had to come in and do work. I mean, it was more work for me, too. But, but what the hell? I mean, am I going to just throw them out in the street? No, come in and, and, and get your brain together and, and make something of yourself. Did you feel That's, that... Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, John. I don't mean to drink. <laughs> hey, John, what are you doing now? Where are you? <laughs> where am I? Yeah, where, where I, I don't even know. I mean, are, am I talking to California or yeah. Illinois or... No, 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 you're talking to California. I live in Newport Beach, California, um, and uh-huh. I am... I'm married. I have uh, twin daughters that are three years old. And, wow! Yeah. So uh, after playing for, Good for you. ten years in the NFL, I retired, and I was yeah. literally on my couch having uh, the reason I retired is I hurt my knee in New England and came home and had knee surgery. And while I was uh, mm. sitting on the couch trying to ponder what I was going to do with my life, um, I, I had actually uh, had filled out all the applications and started studying for my LSATs and was going to go to law school because I had applied for that Adrian Cragen scholarship at uh, after uh-huh. Berkeley, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to law school at Bolt Hall, but I didn't think I'd go play in the NFL for 10 years, and so that had kind of gone past, and so I was looking at some local schools and started right. going down that road, and I got a phone call from, um, you obviously heard of CrossFit, CrossFit, the training style CrossFit. Yeah. Yeah. So CrossFit.com yeah. and the guy who started CrossFit, a guy named Greg Glassman, called me on the phone and asked me if I would teach uh, what I had done in my training and what I'd learned to the CrossFit. So you are, so you taught, you're teaching. Yeah, so I teach, and we teach uh, me and uh, Good for you. my coaches. Good for you. It's a worthy profession, let me tell you. It is, uh, and we travel and teach seminars based on the training style that I used to play in the NFL, and uh, we started a website that year, and we get thousands of hits. And then uh, a couple years ago, I started my own brand, which is Power Athlete, and we have a you know, not only this podcast, but we do events and uh, we have a, right. you know, paid right. back end where we do training and coaching and uh, really help people kind of see through the bullshit because, as you very well know, I mean, oh. there's so oh. much noise, there's Good. so much worthlessness in the world that we just try to offer, like, hey, this is a stripped down, no holds barred, no bullshit style of training, style of eating, just style of, uh, of just really living. Oh. And this podcast is, is really um, been pretty Good awesome extension. Because I get to reconnect with a lot of the people from my past and people that I really count ah, as yeah, yeah, um, yeah. major figures and some of the most influential people in my own life. And, you know, that's why I was so excited to get you on because not only was that an influential class, but I uh, always Oh, laugh. you're sweet. You say that to all the guys up there. I do. I do. <laughs> but to this day, and I tell people this whenever they ask me, like, was school hard? And I'm like, for the most part, I, re- I really enjoyed it. The only class that I busted my ass and was one of the most difficult classes was this class on Roman monuments. Yeah, well, you, you just have to. Have you been to Rome since then? No, I haven't, and it is on my bucket. Well, list John, you got to use this stuff. You got to. You got to take your wife and your kids and go show them Rome. Yeah, I will. My daughters are okay, three, good. three years old, so so they're getting to an good. age where they'll, they they should appreciate it. But I'm going to imagine me dragging my three year olds or my my twin daughters all over Rome, showing them. Yeah, well, wait a couple of years, yeah. yeah. What, what was the big, uh, it was like a manhole cover that had a mouth, and when people put your, they put their hand in it, they tell the truth. Oh, yes. It's on It's on a church uh, in near the Forum Boarium 
in Rome. Uh, God, I, now you, I haven't taught that course in, in a long time. Probably you were the last one, the last course, the last class I, I taught it in. Uh, the, the, the Boca Veritas, I think it was called. And then you, if you put your hand in and told a lie, you lost your hand. Yes. And, uh, and it was, in the uh, mouth. and I remember it had a mouth and it had it looked like waves and they had put it up on a wall, but originally it was supposed to be yeah, a Yeah, that's right. Color. That's right. That's right. And then the other yeah, one is, yeah, is when yeah. I, uh, so my wife and I find out that she's pregnant, we go to the doctor and you see the, the two blinking little lights in there and we realize we had twins. And I all of a sudden, went back in my mind and remembered the story of Castor and Pollux and the form and, and you remember we went through yes. that whole story yes. Yes. and I had visions yes. of I was going to have twin boys and if they were twin boys I was going to name them Castor and Pollux and uh, it was going to be this great thing and, and and then I ended up with twin daughters so I figured those names wouldn't be good so I picked different ones. And what did you call them? Uh, they're actually Irish what names. Uh, Killian. What? Uh, Irish names. Uh, Killian is my one daughter and that's the family name of my wife and then I named my other daughter Killian? Uh, Jameson. James, one second. Uh, Jameson, Jameson. So Jam- Jameson. Jameson, like the whiskey. Oh. <laughs> so is she going to grow up thinking that uh, she's no, associated with whiskey? No, no. What happened is, is uh, we have a family name. My wife's uh, mother's maiden name is Killian, so we we chose that as a name, and then I needed another yeah. Irish name. Right. And I had been in Dublin about two weeks before the girls were born for work, and uh, everywhere you go, everything's uh, Guinness and Jameson. And so when I came up, uh, when the babies were born, kind of unexpectedly, when they came in to ask about the names, it was all I could. That's all I could pull out of my hat at the at that stressful moment. So we went with Jameson and Killian. But never mind, never mind. It'll be a a, a name that will draw, uh, will draw attention. Speaking of names, uh, Dr. Miller, I was reading on yes. your website that you are in quotations referred to as the Indiana Jones. Like that's a nickname. Is that true? Indiana Miller. Indiana Miller. Uh, Even Indiana Miller. Yeah, well, let me explain a little bit about that. Uh, I was born and raised in, in Indiana, okay. so it's a, it's a legitimate name. But in 1976, uh, my second, my third year of teaching at Berkeley, uh, a former student who had graduated the year before came into my office hours, and he said, would you mind giving me some information about how you became an archaeologist and what it's like to be an archaeologist and so on and so forth. And he, we went on for about an hour. He was taking all kinds of notes. And I said, what are you doing there? What are you, what, what's this all about? He said, I got a job with, with somebody named Spielberg. And uh, uh, we're going to do some movies, uh, a movie about uh, an archaeologist. I just wanted background information. Well, I never went and saw those movies until, I don't know, 10 years later. They were old movies by the time I saw them, all the Indiana Jones movies. But when I went to see the first one, and there was Indiana Jones, I said, wait a minute. Did this kid take my name and, 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 and as well as the background? So I don't know. I don't know. But I, 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 on a chance, I couldn't remember his name. But on a chance, I wrote to Spielberg, and I never got an answer. So I don't think I'm going to get royalties. But anyway. I cannot believe that. That's the best story I have ever heard. And, of course, they stole your name. That's not even a question. That's amazing. That's so neat. Well, I don't know. It's, but it's fun to think about it. Yeah, and, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Wow, that's so, so you started at Berkeley in 71 or 73, you said? It's, uh, 73. The fall of 73 was my 71, I was hired. 
but the job didn't start until the fall of 73. And then, uh, man, that's, uh, you know, having gone to Berkeley in the 90s, even going back now, I can't imagine what the landscape and the attitude and everything was like in the 70s at Berkeley. I mean, that would be kind of the uh, post-revolutionary days where, you know, it was got to be just a... Well, I was, I was scared. I, you know, when I, when I went to Berkeley, I didn't... I, I almost took a plane to Los Angeles because I didn't know the topography of California very well at all, really. And I, I went to Berkeley and I heard all these stories about the free speech movement and about students sitting in and professors' offices and so on and so forth. And my first year there, I was teaching a class in Latin, and I had six or eight students, and I don't remember, not a large class. And there was a, a student in the class who was really sort of a hippie in, in the sense that he was unwashed, unclothed, unshaven, uh, sometimes barefoot, what have you. But he was not a bad student. He, he knew some Latin, and, and we got on. About the fourth week or so, I mean, I had decided this guy was a hippie. He was a terrible guy. He was going to you know, sit in my class. He was going to come and, and, and rip the stuff out of my office and what have you. And about the fourth week or so, he came in, my office hours, and he said, Professor Miller, I've, I've come to... To say, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to, to leave school. I can't make it uh, financially. I've been pumping gas in the evenings and working in the supermarkets in the afternoons, and I just, the economic, I'm not going to be able to make it. And he said, I'm, I'm sorry, I just wanted to tell you that I enjoyed the class and, and uh, hope that someday I can come back to school. My heart broke. What was I to judge him? To, to say this guy was a, a, a nasty guy, a bad guy, Okay, he was unwashed and, and poorly clothed and what have you, but that was a function of his status in society, not of the way he was operating. And it was a huge lesson to me about how Berkeley operates. It's there for everybody. Hmm. Well, Dr. Miller, can you tell us a little bit about Wabash? Wabash. 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 Yes, Wabash. <laughs> Wabash is a, well, maybe that's why I'm an archaeologist, because Wabash is an old-fashioned throwback school. It was founded uh, not quite 200 years ago. Uh, it ha is only for men, or, or well, you, you might call them boys, but anyway. Uh, and it, uh, you have to take uh, two years of a foreign language. That's where I started ancient Greek. Uh, you have to take a year of history, a semester of physics, a semester of biology. There are all these requirements. And the notion is that you don't decide what your major is until you're a junior. You you go and taste a little of this and taste a little of that and, and get a, a round of thing. And, and for me, it was wonderful because it gave me, it opened windows to me for, for all around the world. Um, it, it has a... a a reputation of being sort of a, uh, uh, well, what, what should I say? A place where guys go and drink beer and and uh, and uh, go out and, and play play games uh, of different kinds. Uh, but they're, 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 you you don't come out of Wabash College very well polished socially because you've never seen a girl. But uh, you, you come out knowing uh, a, a fair amount of uh, history and physics and chemistry and, and religion and what have you. So it, 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 it fit me. It doesn't fit everybody, uh, but it fit me very well. Is it still, is it still in operation? 
you kidding me? And, 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 and you know, it, they, they're very good at fundraising. <laughs> and uh, most of us, I mean, in my, in my graduating class at Wabash College, there were, I'm trying to think now, uh, 80, wow. 100, I mean, very small, very small. Uh, at the time, I think there were 600 undergraduates altogether, but uh, some of those were freshmen who flunked out or left uh, because they wanted to see girls. And uh, so it was a very small school. It's still less than a 1,000. Uh, but there's something special about it. I mean, I... I've never been in a monastery, and I'm not, I don't think that Wallace qualifies for monastic life, but there was a sort of concentration of, of intellectual, uh, activity and physical activity at the same time for five days a week. And then you went out and got a keg of beer. <laughs> Living the dream, as we call it. That sounds like you have some pretty fond memories. It's like a, Perpetual oh, very much, so. per, uh, very much so. Very much so. Professor, will uh, the, uh, really the only thing I wanted to know is, uh, so what are you doing now? I know you're in Nemea. Like, what does your day look like? Are right. you are you still doing right. archaeological work? Are you are you writing? Are you teaching? Like, what are you doing? I'm 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 doing a lot of different things. Uh, I'm still not bored. Uh, the major thing that I'm going through right now has to do with the revival of of the games, and it's I'm just. Just this afternoon, I was able to send in uh, all of the articles for the, this year's newsletter that goes out to the members of the Nemean Games, the members of the Society for Nemean Games. We have staged these games five times, starting in 1996. We, in, in the last games in, in 2012, we had over a thousand people come to run from 87 different countries. Uh, they go in in clusters of 12 because the ancient starting line has 12 places on it, 12 lanes. And they, they're sorted out by age and by gender. They go into the locker room and they take off their clothes, they put on a, a tunic, they go barefoot through the, the, the entrance tunnel, uh, which is over 100 feet in length, and they really get transformed into ancient Greeks. For five minutes, for ten minutes, and and they they are touching ancient Greek soil, and they get a sense of what it must have been like to be an ancient Greek running down the track. They're not doing it in the nude, which would have been perfectly authentic, but they are doing it in uniforms. I mean, in, in these white tunics that are all the same for everybody, so that the sense of the uniform of nudity, which is a leveler, which is a an equator between people is there uh, and that exists uh, anyway we we have uh, I think it's about 1200 members now in our society they're scattered they're in 18 different countries around the world uh, and this time of the year we send out a newsletter of what we've been doing uh, for the last 12 months uh, and an invitation to the general assembly which is always in early January a lot of our people can't come. I mean, they're, they're, they're located in other parts of the world. Uh, and a lot of them in California, actually. Uh, and, uh, and also a reminder to pay their dues. Um, so that, that takes up a, lo a large part of my time. We've also had a problem, uh, the last uh, few months because of the economic crisis here in Greece. There is a real danger that the museum and the site is going to be closed down because the state doesn't have the money to, to 
to to uh, pay for guards. And our society, with the help of other people, has been paying for guards for nearly six months now, and we're just about exhausted. Um, so we'll see what happens. But I'm, I'm very worried about the, the future of that. I also do writing on articles uh, and and. Just today, this morning, a former graduate student who is, is off co-authoring uh, the next major volume uh, sent in his manuscript with his catalog, and so I'm going to have to go start going through that and be play editor uh, with, with those materials. Okay. And I have a garden and a dog and a wife. <laughs> well, you certainly are busy. Well, uh, well. No, I'm not. I'm not bored. I'm not bored. <clears throat> so when uh, when did you move full full time to Greece? Well, I retired from from Cal, from Berkeley, in 2004. That was my last year. I mean, I went back and taught two semesters after that, but that was a sort of a, uh, an ad hoc uh, basis. But in 2000, in, in December 2004, I, I retired, and so we started building a home here. Uh, this is a place that I have my books and and where we live uh, on a, on basically a year-round basis. We, we always go back to California for a couple of months in, in the winter to see family and friends, uh, doctors, pay taxes, all those wonderful things. Uh, but basically, life is, is here in the, in this little village. And, you know, I've, over the years, I've, I've, there are a lot of friends here, people with, with whom I have shared experiences of different kinds, and um, it's home. It's not, it's not quite like Indiana, but <laughs> it approaches what I grew up with. Doc, is there a place that if someone wanted to make some sort of donation to help support um, the Nimian Games, is there a place where they can yeah. do that? Oh, yes. How nice of you to ask. <laughs> uh, if you look, go onto the website, www.nimiangames, one word, nimiangames.org, uh, there is a place where you can, I mean, there's lots of different information uh, on the website about the past games and the plans for the future, so on and so forth. But there's also a place where it says, I think, join or help and join. I can't remember exactly what the, the rubric is, but there's a, a place there where uh, people can go and, and, and sign up. And it's also a place where they can go and sign up to come and run in 2016. Our next games will be on June the, the 11th of 2000. And 16, and, and people are already starting to get excited. And starting to sign, we've got five or six people already signed up for, for the games for that year. That's great. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being such a wealth of knowledge and um, hopefully sparking some of our own intellect. As we we are all athletes, but I'm sure we can, you know, always gain a little bit from speaking with someone who. Uh, it's obviously a lot smarter than we are. <laughs> no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. I know some things you don't know, and you know some things that I don't know. And when we get together, we trade them. Uh, un un unfortunately, in this venue, as we're talking on the telephone long distance, and you're talking with an old man who can't really run anymore, uh, it's sort of one-sided. But there was a time when I was out running and, and competing. There was a time when Plato went out and ran and competed. And uh, I'm don't, I don't mean to cast myself in Plato's form, but you know, it, it's, it's don't don't be afraid to be smart. <laughs> well, thank you so so much. I know probably for John, this is also a really special conversation. He uh, he definitely 
he and for me. He built this up quite a bit to us. I know he is um, is a big admirer of your work. So yeah, thank you, Professor. I appreciate you taking the time. And, well, uh, John, I, you, you were one of my best students uh, in a in a funny way, uh, not just intellectually, but because you combined what I've been talking about, mind and body. Thank you, Professor. That's a, that's a big compliment. I thank you very much. Well, no, it's, unless, it's deserved. Unless there's anything else and a, you wanna you wanna uh, plug out there for either your website or if there's any other event or um, uh, educational information that you think people should um, reach out with, go for it. If there's anything you wanna. Talk uh, about. The only thing I would mention is that our society here in in the Maya, in addition to uh, having the revival of the games, is starting uh, a, a school of ancient Greek athletics. And uh, if you look at the uh, the schedule of, of that school, John would understand very well. It's, it's the book uh, on ancient Greek athletics that I wrote that evolved from the class that John was a part of on, on athletics. But in addition to that, what we're hoping to do is have have a, a, a program set up where a local high school teacher can bring students for a day where a uh, university from the United States can bring students for three days or a week and, and uh, study athletics, go out in the ancient track, throw an ancient discus, throw an ancient javelin, uh, run down the track uh, in your bare feet or maybe bare altogether if we can uh, handle that. Uh, and in addition to that, we're hoping, and this is, these are big dreams, I know, uh, but we're hoping to build a replica of the building, which we the, we have the foundations of an ancient building here at Nemea, where the athletes stayed when they came to train for the games. We want to build a replica of that a few hundred uh, yards away, uh, outside the archaeological zone, uh, where students will come and, 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 and go into rooms with ancient furniture. And, uh, and, and with ancient equipment, ancient discuses and what have you, and, and, uh, live for a few hours, a few days, a week, uh, like ancient Greek athletes. That, and, and, and we'll see if, if we can carry that off. I don't know. The economic situation is not very good. But, uh, anyway, that's our, that's our hope right now that we're sort of pushing in the back of our minds. Well, that would be a really amazing experience. That sounds like a, like I think so. I think so. I, and, I, and I have to say that one of the reasons I'd like to see it happen is so I could experience it. Yeah. Um, Selfishly, I think it's great. That's awesome. Well, John, anything else? No, it's been uh, it's been great. I, I thank you, Professor, for taking your time, and uh, I'm just glad that. Well, uh, thank you, John. The people in the podcast. It's been a pleasure for me. You you make me feel ten years younger. <laughs> well, what are you talking about? You're way younger than I thought you were. I actually, I, I thought I. Geez, I thought you were in your like early 40s, early 50s. So I guess that Indiana Jones. Oh yeah, well that's. I tried to make you think that. I'm glad I succeeded. Uh, well, it's but, been a pleasure. Take care of yourself, Doc. Thank you again. Thank you. You, you too. All right. Come and see us at Namia. Okay. We'll do. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay.